The Tom Sumner Program. Old fashioned radio for a new generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, John. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Tom, easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm alright, Tom. How are you? Lucky day, Mr. Sumner. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry. What's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program, old-fashioned radio for a new generation. This is Mayor Sheldon Neely, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Show. Hey, welcome back, everybody. This is the Tom Sumner Program, and uh, as we roll into hour three, or as I like to call it, the third half of our three-hour tour, we're going to remember what happened with uh, Nevada cattle rancher Cliven Bundy, as uh, told to my next guest for a book called Clive and Bundy, American Patriot. And uh, the author is Mike Stickler, and he joins me by phone. Um, good morning, Mike. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Tom. Thanks so much for having me. And it is a beautiful morning. I, You know, every time I, I see your name, Mike, I, I want to say Strickler, and I, I get hung up on that every time. And it's actually... Uh, the R is uh, silent. <laughs> it is. It's, it's a stickler for spelling. There you go. Um, <laughs> Mike, how did you come to do this book? And, and can you work in a little synopsis of, of what Clive and Bundy went through for people who, I don't know, were maybe in a cave or, or missed the whole standoff at, at uh, the Bundy Ranch? Yeah, so um, I'm a I'm a Nevadan myself. I live in northern Nevada. Um, most people don't realize, but the state's a really big state. I'm I'm approximately ten hour drive time north of of uh, Cliven's Ranch, and so I had heard about what went on. You know, mostly because I was a Nevadan, so I saw it on the news, like many of your guests have. I I saw what the, uh, you know, the newspapers and the television were reporting at the time. I didn't pay a lot of attention to it. And then, and then what ended up happening is I didn't think much about it until 2016. His, his son, um, Ammon Bundy, who's now running for governor up in Idaho, he, he actually had an encounter with the government up in Oregon. And I, I only thing I remember thinking to myself was, what's he doing in Oregon? He's from Nevada. Right. And so I really, I really was kind of a blank slate, and I met Cliven, and just through a set of circumstances. And and at first, when I met Cliven, I, I just said to him, you know, um, eventually after getting to know him a little bit, I asked him, well, tell me a little bit about what happened. And at the and at the time, he was incarcerated, and. He had been incarcerated at that point well over 350 days, something like that. He ended up being incarcerated for over 400 days. And um, and so he and I got to talking, 
and he began to just lay out little pieces of the story. He actually he actually took out a, a legal size pad and and just started to sketch out what was going on and what happened. He likes to write when he when he talks, and um, and I was just fascinated by the story. Now, you know, I was I never intended to write the book. I never intended to write any kind of book like this. I'd been I typically had only written Christian books up until this point. And, uh, but I was just so, so fascinated by his side of it. Well, for most of us, most of us that saw it on the news, um, it was portrayed almost as if he was trying to get out of paying his grazing fees. Yeah. And that's not really, that's not really completely right. Um, so so what's going on is that Cliven's family has been grazing cattle in that same area, which is around Mesquite, Nevada, which it's about an hour and a half out into the desert from Las Vegas. And his family's been raising cattle there for about 150, 157 years um, on the maternal side of his family. And so um, his family's been there and been part of that community for a long time. And on that same grazing area, that allotment in the in the open range, um, sixty three other um, ranchers were grazing in the same area. So his family's been around there a long time. Cliven only owns one hundred and sixty deeded acres in which he farms on, and the rest of it is um, grazing land. And and you know your listeners might not be familiar, but out here in the West, open range is grazed on all the time. It's been you know for several hundred years it's been grazed on like that and well maybe not several hundred a couple hundred anyway and and um and so he was grandfathered in because of his father's grazing rights and his grandfathers and great grandfathers in fact they'd been grazing there before the bureau of land management had even been invented and so there was always an understanding between the bureau of land management and clive and bundy there's actually a, uh, a memo that was written up, a memorandum of understanding about Cliven's arrangement out there. And uh, the sheriff always protected that, that arrangement with the Bureau of Land Management. And so Cliven's been grazing out there until, really, until 2014 when the federal government decided that they needed to take his land in order to mitigate commercial purposes, the construction of tens of thousands of acres of solar panel farms. See, what's, what really, in the backstory, what was going on was that under the Obama administration, they were building, building solar farms all over the desert down there. And in order to take the land for commercial purposes, they were required to uh, set aside land they call it mitigation, set aside land for the desert tortoise, which was an endangered species. So what they did was they focused on the roughly 600,000 acres that Cliven raised, raised cattle on and decided that here's an old man that doesn't have any money. He's just an old scofflaw. Who cares what he thinks? And they decided to take his land to mitigate for the tortoises. And he put what they didn't count on was that he would put up a fight. He, he would protest. He would get his family and his friends and they would come together and, um, march and, and protest against what the government was trying to do. And so that's kind of the backstory of what happened. Of course, Cliven 
It feels that uh, it was completely unconstitutional what they were doing. Um, and he fought it the best he could. And then it ultimately, um, you know, just escalated. And in my book, I really clearly clear, clearly lay out why it escalated into what we all know as the standoff, which was really a media term. Cliven still says it wasn't a standoff. It was a protest. I was protesting what the government was doing. I was practicing my First Amendment rights. And and how was that? How was that conducted? How was it? How did he consider it a protest and media consider it a standoff? What what was well, physically it, going on? Yeah, so so for days, approximately 10 days before uh, the actual, what we all know of is that what looks like a, an armed standoff in the wash out there in the desert. It's called the Toquaf Wash in the desert. Um, Cliven and his family and his neighbors and whatnot had been, you know, basically just taking signs and and uh, protesting along the highway. Um, they had built a little stage there, put some flags up, and were trying to get immediate uh, the media's attention. While in the meanwhile, the government had cordoned off the entire area, and I mean hundreds of thousands of acres. They shut down the the uh, airspace. Had the FFA make it a no-fly zone over them. They brought in 200 um, federal agents. They spent over $4 million in building a compound, um, hiring ca uh, contractors to come and gather the cattle with helicopters and whatnot. Um, and, and then they tried to close down roads all around the area, and, and they kept having encounters in the 10 days with protesters and locals and whatnot that escalated, in my view, it was escalated by the government side. Um, the government kept escalating the, uh, the tensions between the parties to such, such a point that um, one federal agent walked up and grabbed a woman, a small woman, she's probably about 120 pounds, maybe 130 pounds, and literally from behind grabbed her and picked her up like a sack of grain and threw her head first into the desert dirt. And that was caught on camera. And when that was caught on camera, it went out um, throughout social media. And that got of it, uh, the attention of people all over the country. Within hours, it had 500,000 views. And last I looked at it, it had something like a million and a half views. And, um, and it continues to grow. Well, that, that and the, the call out around the community to go in, and help um, Clive and Bundy was heard by the citizens of the United States, but also by the FBI, the Bureau of Land Management, the Park Service. They knew what was going on. And so they all met and actually decided to close down the roundup of Cliven's cattle and stop the operation three days before the actual big confrontation as as uh, most of us are familiar with. And so what, what actually happened was the day of the confrontation, the day of the, the protest and, and uh, the standoff, is the sheriff, the local sheriff, Sheriff Gillespie from uh, Las Vegas, he came out with an entourage of other sheriffs and met with the protesters and said, 
Um, it's been decided. The roundup is over. We're going to give you all your cattle back. Um, you know, we, you know, Mikopa, you know, in essence. And he, uh, Cliven demanded, and the crowd demanded that they give the cattle back within an hour. And the sheriff went over to, said he was going over to see um, about the cattle. And, and within an hour, he never came back. And so they waited another hour, hour and a half. And then they they decided that they would go over and see if the cattle were still in the compound. I'm talking about they, the protesters. At that time, at that point, there was about 280, roughly, people protesting. And now, people don't understand, but it's a nine-mile drive from where the protest was happening, where the stage was and the flags and the, the people marching, to the compound. And so they drove over and the, the compound. And the compound, the, Mike, I'm sorry to interrupt, but the compound was what? A, the compound was a facility that the federal agencies built where okay. law enforcement okay. was staying, it, it wasn't the, the were gathered. It wasn't the Bundy Ranch. No, okay. no. And, right. and it's important to understand that where the protest was wasn't even the Bundy Ranch. The Bundy Ranch was still two more, two more miles down the road. And so... They drove to the compound, all of the protesters did, in their various personal vehicles. And when they got to the turnoff, they were on a four-lane highway. When they got to the turnoff, the turnoff was blocked off by officers. There was a barricade there and a checkpoint, if you will. And so not knowing what to do, they all pulled off the side of the road um, to the right. And then they decided that they would walk down into the wash, the Tokop wash, where two, the two freeway underpasses or overpasses went. <clears throat> and, and when they got down there, um, they were confronted with as many as 25 armed officers at under the bridge who were stand, standing there in a barricade saying that they had been authorized lethal force to shoot upon the crowd. Now, I, I carefully listened to the audio uh, of this over and over again, and there are times you could hear them say it sounded like they said non-lethal force, and other times it sounded like they said lethal force. But I can tell you the crowd understood it as lethal force because at one point um, a Fox News reporter who was down there, he actually walked out towards them with his camera and said, are you really going to shoot these people? You're going to open fire on American citizens. And they kept threatening to shoot him. And so he actually lifted up his shirt and turned around the circle and said, look, I don't have a gun. I just want to, I just want to see what you guys are thinking. And he kept advancing until they, they warned him off. They scared him enough for him to go back, and he never could get a, uh, approach the officers. So Mike, ultimately, go ahead. Yeah, I have to, I have to take a break here, um, but this is such a fascinating story. Can you stick around for a few minutes so we can talk some more? I'd be happy to. Great. My guest is Mike Stickler, and uh, Michael is the author of um, a, uh, a book about Cliven Bundy. It's called, in fact, Cliven Bundy, American Patriot, and it's uh, Cliven, Clive Bundy's side of the story as, uh, as told to Mike, and, and we're going to hear more about that after we let our broadcast partners squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. If you're streaming us, we have some messages as well. So don't touch that dial. Don't click that mouse. We'll be back with more right after this.
Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is working to help keep you and your community safe from the threat of novel or new coronavirus. If you have traveled to a country with a widespread outbreak of COVID-19, CDC recommends you stay home and check your health for 14 days after returning to the United States. Take your temperature with a thermometer two times a day. Watch for symptoms like fever, cough, and trouble breathing. And if you feel sick or have symptoms, call ahead before you go to a doctor's office or emergency room. Tell the doctor about your recent travel and your symptoms and avoid contact with others. For more information, visit cdc.gov. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe Bye from the Blue Hawaiian. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Dr. Comedian Jonah Bodie. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Annan. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's, uh, it's that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom, this is my favorite interview all It's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. Yellow. Speaking. Oh, dear. Honey, our car warranty is expiring again. So soon? It just expired last week. You don't even own a car! Not now, Dana. Your father's on the phone. Hey! Mom and Dad, you're being scammed. It's a robocall. Scammers are using new technology and clever tactics to make more and more calls that look legitimate but are hard to trace. They can make it look like they're calling from any number, even from numbers of people you know. My robocall crackdown team is working with state and federal partners to stop the robocalls for good, but I need your guys' help. Don't trust your caller ID. Verify you're really talking to the person whose number appears when your phone rings. If you accidentally answer a robocall, hang up right away. Engaging in conversation will only lead to more calls. Use a call blocking app on your cell phone that stops robocalls before they interrupt your day. And if you do get a robocall, File a complaint with my office online at mi.gov slash robocalls. And mom, dad, please do not give your information out to these scammers over the phone. They're just trying to trick you. Well, at least they call. No, I get it. You're busy. But you know, Janine's daughter is a doctor. She calls every week. A doctor. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. 
Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. Hello, this is State Senator Jim Ananick, and you're listening to Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody. We continue our conversation with uh, the author of a new book. It's called um, Clive and Bundy, American Patriot, and it is uh, Clive Bundy's story as told to author Mike Stickler, who joins me by phone. Mike, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around. Sorry to make you sit through all that. Yeah, no problem. Um, Mike, we were talking a little bit about um, the... uh, the events that happened um it's been compared somehow to the january 6th protesters at the capitol from last year um what how do you see those two as um similar in some way so when when the the announcements came out that there was an investigation going to be on the January 6th um protesters the um one of the Bundy 19 one of the 19 guys who were locked up for over in some cases over 5 years 6 years um over the Bundy case one of them wrote a very clear statement he said he said to those who are being investigated for January 6th. Get your affairs in order. Put your money with your family. Sign off your property and be prepared because because they're going to put you in prison and they're going to keep you there and threaten you until such a time that you plead guilty. And it was it was such a chilling statement and it and it was yet so true what actually happened to the Bundy 19 is they were scooped up two years after the the roundup, thrown in prison, and and untold um, false accusations thrown at them over and over and over again, until by a literally a miracle, the the judge finally saw what was going on and dismissed the case with prejudice. Um, I mean, it was it was quite amazing. I was there. I, I sat through the entire trial of Clive and Bundy. Um, I heard the evidence that they were presenting. I heard the things that were said, and it was so fabricated, so shocking. Um, I I actually said in a in another interview it was very Stalin-like what they were doing to them, and yet that's how the government goes after you. They they name you as a target. They threaten your family. They take all. They threaten all your money. They seize your money if they can. They do everything they can. They leave you in solitary confinement. They make all kinds of false accusations, all with an attempt to pressure you into um, pleading guilty, even even guilty to something that you did not commit. And that's what happened to the Bundy in the Bundy nineteen. Uh, their their case was just amazing. They had. They had wiretaps on them, even when they were in the uh, in jail talking to the lawyers. They were listening to their lawyers. The government was listening to their lawyers and and their defendants talking. They had uh, and none of these, by the way, they had four different wiretaps on them, and none of them were um, had a warrant. Not one of them did. The judge was just amazed when she heard that, and and um, they had. Um, 
falsified information, hid information. They claimed that there was no um, there was no sniper team over the Bundy home or whatnot. That was proven to be false. Uh, the media proclaimed and showed all kinds of pictures of guys down in the wash that day with, with long guns. Well, it turns out there were 15, uh, identified 15 people with long guns. Well, 11 of them were working for the government. Um, they still claim, the news still claims that Cliven Bundy owed a million dollars. That was just a complete fabrication. The, the um, prosecution presented $3,500 or excuse me, to be accurate, $4,300 um, in how much Clive and Bundy owed the federal government. Um, they spent over, uh, they had a budget of over $100 million to prosecute these 19 guys. And, and Why it's could just, that, it's how, just frightening. How is that even a reasonable investment if they felt um, that they were justified in, in uh, uh moving some of these uh, ranchers like Clive Bundy off of that federal land for whatever purposes they had decided to uh, use it for. How is hundreds of millions of dollars a worthwhile investment? Well, you don't... The, just the Chinese development for the solar farms um, down in southern Nevada was a $4 billion project. Really? And so, yes, and so it, it is, we're talking about huge money down there. And in order, they really had a problem. They were taking, really understand this, they were taking public land for commercial purposes to turn it into solar farms. And in order to comply by the law, they had to do something about, they had to give land to the tortoise in perpetuity. Now, my sister laughed and said, well, did anybody tell the tortoises that they had to move, you know? Um, but it didn't matter if there were tortoises on, on Cliven's land or not. They just had to show it on paper that they set this property aside for the tortoise to live. And in order to comply by the, the law, in order to take this public land, it's a long-developed process that they've done. Um, I actually talked to Senator Harry Reid's attorney about this, um, they developed it down, down there years ago in Las Vegas as Las Vegas continued to grow and encroach in on public land over and over again, building um, golf courses and whatnot. They kept, they kept taking public land for commercial purposes, and they had to deal with the, the, uh, the tortoise issue. So they would just designate land anywhere out in the desert and said, this is where the tortoises live now. And so that's what they were doing. And there was billions of dollars behind it. I, I mean, if you looked at a map and you saw Cliven's grazing area, you would see that there was 15,000 acres to the west of him for solar farms. There was 5,000 acres south of him on an Indian reservation. They made they designated another area to the east. Uh, we're we're talking about big money, and so this was not a simple little project. So for them to invest that kind of money, it's not it's not surprising. And then, and then the stories they told, you know, I, I, because I'm with you, I, I really am, Tom. When I first started doing this book, I was like, oh, my gosh, this is a bunch of garbage. You know, why would they do this? It defies logic. Well, they said over and over again that the Bundys were a threat, a threat to the, to the Southern Nevada and a threat to all people. <laughs> at, at, one, at one point, they said that, that, um, that if they let him out of jail, he would be out there in the desert surrounded by militiamen, 
and they would never get him out there, and he'd set his own, he'd build his own country, and they based this all on so-called threat assessments that the FBI um, and two other agencies put together. There was a total of four threat assessments, but they would never produce those threat assessments, even by the order of the court. They wouldn't produce them, and finally the judge threatened to put them in jail if they didn't produce them, and when they did finally produce them, the threat assessments actually said that the Bundys were no threat. Mike, you said there were 280 uh, roughly uh, protesters involved in, in this. Were a lot of those people from the immediate area? I, I seem to recall people offering to go there, you know, to take up arms, in fact, and go there from all over the country, or or were those all just pretty much uh, um, area people? Yeah, most of them, hands down, were from the immediate area, uh, the 280. Um, there were, by that point, people coming in from outside of the country. And ironically, over 2,000 people showed up at the Bundy Ranch, but it was they all showed up, almost all of them showed up after the protest and that standoff in the wash was over and Cliven got his can his cattle back. I mean, yeah, think wasn't about there it, something about people sending truckloads of food and Oh know. yeah. Water. You go down to Cliven's ranch and there's still pallets of water sitting there in his barn. Um, because people shipped food, they shipped water, they came down. There, people came from as far um, far away as uh, New Hampshire you know, um, Oregon, Washington, Idaho, uh, Utah, California, Arizona, which, of course, is pretty close um, down there. They came from all over the country. But most of them, again, I want to drive this point home, most all of them came well after the thing was over. And, and if you think about it, of course they did. They, you know, they had to get time off from their job, and they had to make arrangements and then drive there. It didn't, you know, they, most people can't just drop everything and be there within a couple of hours. And so, well, and big, a lot of people was, probably, was over. a lot of people probably didn't even make the decision until the standoff happened. That's right. That's right. And, and so it's, and then what happened in the courtroom, you know, again, not widely reported on, but there was a whistleblower memo that came out of the Bureau of Land Management. And, and the officer that wrote it was actually the senior investigating officer who was over the preparing for the, the criminal trials of the 19 men. And he saw that so many illegal acts were happening that he couldn't, his own conscience couldn't take it anymore. And he wrote out this 18-page memo saying what actually was happening in this, in, inside of the Bureau of Land Management. And it was presented to the uh, Department of Justice months before the trial, but they ignored it. And then when it finally became public, um, ironically, that's the time that the judge uh, decided that he that she was going to dismiss the case. Now, I'm not going to say whether that had bearing on her decision or not. I was there in the courtroom. She had plenty of other reasons. In fact, she listed 16 reasons why she wanted to dismiss the case. Um, and none of which were inside of the whistleblower memo, but but it was a um, 
it was really dramatic. And, and again, the media didn't get that really very right because they weren't in the courtroom when she listed those 16 things. It happened on December the 14th, just before Christmas. All the media had pretty much had left except for a couple of reporters locally. And then she stopped the whole trial and, and removed the jury and then sat there for two hours and explained to the, to the, um, both the defense and the prosecution why she was um, leaning towards dismissing the case. She listed out 16 reasons why, and then, and then put it off to January the 8th uh, as her final decision so that uh, each party could you know, file their motions and whatnot up front. And that's when the jury showed up was on, or excuse me, when the, the media showed back up was on January the 8th to hear what she had to say. And she hung her hat, her legal hat, on, on just a few legal terms or legal reasonings, but what was behind it was shocking. It should shock every American. Um, it is not what, what we think. Um, you know, how we learned in high school how this was supposed to work. Um, Whatever really happened to the, the Fox reporter you were talking about at the end of the last segment who basically it it appeared as though the feds were were drawing down on him yeah he went out uh, he went on and and did an entire documentary about that whole experience um and what he saw he he did some media interviews you know when when the uh, protest was over there was a lot of media continued to go on because the media was trying to catch up with the with the storyline and and understandably and, and by the way I always like to point out, you know, what ended that standoff, that very in, um, intense standoff in the desert, was the sheriffs. The sheriffs actually came in and took over um, the scene. They basically ordered off the federal agents, and the federal agents did not want to leave. And the way they did it was they took a set of officers and went down there and stood in the desert between the federal agents who were pointing guns at American citizens and, sit and ordered them off and stood there, as, if you will, as a human shield between the parties until the, until the agents backed off, loaded up their trucks, and left. And so, and, what, and, and uh, the sheriff later on said in a media interview, and I thought it was fascinating, he says, you know, it was so tense that all it would have taken was a backfire from a car on the bridge above us, and people would have died. That's how tense that thing was. And... So the sheriff, the local county sheriff, made took control of the situation and and uh, and brought it for to a peaceful end. Or it may not have ever been peaceful. It could have been completely different. Did he have a jurisdictional claim to to act on? <laughs> well, there's all kinds of arguments about that, but of course. Well, I'm just wondering he how he managed yep. to, you know, even make a case to the feds that it was you know that they were they were stepping in that they had some authority to do so yeah i i actually listened to the radio calls the sheriff the under sheriff at the time and um had actually i could hear i heard the traffic between them where they were ordering them off they were commanding them to leave and that and the federal agents were saying no you'd have no jurisdiction the argument that went on behind the scenes you know, obviously was not um, recorded and you couldn't hear, but uh, the result was they finally did. And, and there was actually um, uniform video cams from the federal agents 
they were actually mocking these sheriff's deputies who were standing between them and the protesters. They were mocking, picking on their shoes, calling them, you know, punks and stuff like this. I mean, it was really something else. It was the professionalism all went out the door, and the tension between the the uh, the agencies was amazing. Um, and and yet it ended up peaceful, or it could have turned into, um, you know, a mess. It, it could have been, turned into people dying in a big way. Did anyone die during any of the events surrounding that uh, standoff and the roundup? No, not no one. No one was even hurt during that time. And and ironically, you know, one of the things that Cliven Bundy was charged with, Cliven himself was charged with. Um, threatening and assaulting federal agents with a gun. Okay, well, ironically, and this is proven, Cliven never left the protest area, that nine miles away area. He stayed there by the flagpole because he told he, he told the sheriff he would meet him there. So Cliven waited there, and Cliven never had a gun. He never possessed a gun on his person that entire day or any other day around the protest. None of the Bundys did. And... Um, and and yet he was accused of being in the wash pointing guns at federal agents. And yet he was nine miles away, and that's provable that he was nine miles away. And so it, it's just that they were trying to put Cliven in prison for 400 years. <laughs> okay, so this, this is just amazing. What, um, what is and, the status now of, of that situation and... Uh, Clive Bundy's uh, ranch and and holdings and so on. So the day uh, of the protest, they released the cattle back out on the range. Uh, the sheriffs actually took them up there and released the cattle to the cowboys, and they drove them back out on the range, and those same cattle remain on the range today. That's the first part to understand. Secondly, they threw Cliven in prison for 400 days. The case was dismissed with prejudice. The federal, uh, the prosecutors waited one year. They had a statute limitations on their appeal for one year. So they waited 364 days, and then they filed an appeal. That appeal was heard by the Ninth Circuit out in San Francisco, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, which is by far arguably the most liberal court, um, court of appeals in the United States. And they summarily dismissed and upheld the judge's decision and then made more motions to release one of the guys who was actually in prison still. They, they made a motion and, and released him out of prison and basically restored the rights to every one of the 19 guys except for one. He actually still remains in prison today behind the whole thing. But the Bundy family went on living, thriving. He's back ranching and farming, Cliven is. His, his son Ammon is running for governor up in Idaho. Right. Um, and, and they're all, you know, living the lives that they wanted. It, it's funny because Cliven, when he's asked for an interview now, he says, look, I never wanted to be bothered with this. The government came to my doorstep. All I've ever wanted to do is farm and ranch. And that's what he's happily doing. What about the guy that's still in prison? Uh, on, on what charges? Is, is this an individual that just that went too far or somebody had to pay? Well, I, in, in fairness, I did not look really deeply into his case, but enough, probably more than most. Um, he was found guilty. And once you're found guilty by a jury, um, 
he's found guilty in a previous trial before Clivens. And once you're found guilty, in order to un unravel that, okay, whether you plead guilty or you're found guilty, in order to unravel that, it takes a lot of motions and and legal wrangling and you know and he's often last i knew he's somewhere on the east coast in florida or somewhere in prison there and he's trying to uh you know with public defenders and whatnot trying to get his case overturned like everybody else i'm confident he eventually will but um it's just so difficult once that's happened even though the judge um readily dismissed the, the case for um Against all the others, it's it's just a difficult thing to unravel. It's it's amazing how this thing could could flare up and then I I don't know just sort of be extinguished after a couple of years and and as if nothing ever happened. Yeah, I I asked Cliven a, a number of times, "Are you going to sue the government?" and his position is that in order, you know, he's a Mormon man. Um, he's very committed Mormon. And his position is, I can't, I can't forgive them for what they did for me to me if I sue them. I don't feel like forgiveness is whole and complete if I turn around and sue them for violating my civil rights. And I obviously, he clearly has a case. He has more than a case. He probably will win it for millions of dollars. But he just he won't do it. He just says, you know what? Me and my family have decided not to do that. We're going to just, we have to walk in forgiveness for what the government did to me. And revenge isn't part of that. And revenge is not part of that, not in his viewpoint. Well, this is, this is a fascinating story. And, um, I, I, I suspect it was, uh, a little bit of a labor of love writing this story because it, it almost tells itself. What what I found amazing is I really approached, you know, as I mentioned, I was a blank slate about Cliven Bundy and the whole thing that <laughs> happened. I, I really, I had no opinion. And then when I first met Cliven, I kind of suspected he was, you know, a tinfoil hat conspiracy theorist, you know. Right. <laughs> you know, I did. And, and so I took extra care at every claim that he told me, everything that he said, like the, like the snipers that surrounded his, um, his home. He claimed that there were snipers that, that Ammon actually said there was actually um, laser targets on his children, okay? Well, I really doubted that, quite frankly. I just doubted it. I said, you know, I think this guy's embellishing or just making this up. But when I got into the videos, I actually saw videos of the sniper teams on the mountains around him. And then, and then they denied it, and they denied it, and denied it. And then finally, finally, um, one of the officers in cross-examination admitted it. Hey, Mike, uh, we're going to have to put an end there. I can't believe how fast the time has gone. But I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about what we've been talking about, but about you and your work, past, present, and future. And we've got about 30 seconds. Um, do, you, do you have a website you can share? Yeah, the best bet. You know, I'd invite everybody to check out my book, Cliven Bundy, American Patriot. You can find it at clivenbundy.net, clivenbundy.net. Um, it'll go right there to the page. If you want to read about any of my other books, just go to mikestickler.info, mikestickler.info, and you can see all my other books. Be happy to uh, get one in your hands. 
Well, Mike, it's uh, it's been an honor and a pleasure talking with you. Keep up the good work. I appreciate you, Tom, very much. Take care. Hey, we'll be back with more right this after this. This is the unknown comic, and guess what? You're listening to the Tom Sumner Show right now, and now, and now too, and even now. It's 2022, and this year the Tom Sumner Program begins its 15th year. It would not be here without support through the years from individuals and organizations like these. Seth David Radwell. East Village Magazine. Flint Institute of Music. Hello, I'm Maestro Ricky DeMagno. Flint Community School. MTA Flint. Flint Comics and Entertainment. Hamity Complete Food Center. The Flint River Watershed Coalition. W.H. Weiscarver. The Genesee County Road Commission. Loan Museum Auto Fair. Thomas Appliance. The Genesee Health Plan, Flip Flip Technology, Mark Community College, Pure Michigan. Friends on Facebook have also helped by contributing to the show's online fundraisers two or three times a year. If you would like to help the Tom Sumner program continue to thrive by becoming a sponsor, send an email of interest to Tom at TomSumnerProgram.com. Add your name to the list of supporters, past, present, and future. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans, and soon they will be available to everyone. This vaccine means hope. It will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. I want to go back to work and I want to be able to move around. To visit with Michelle's mom, the hug her and see her on her birthday. You know what I'm really looking forward to is going to opening day in Texas Rangers Stadium with a full stadium. We've lost enough people and we've suffered enough damage. In order to get rid of this pandemic, it's important for our fellow citizens to get vaccinated. I'm getting vaccinated because we want this pandemic to end as soon as possible. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. So roll up your sleeve and do your part. This is our shot. Now it's up to you. Do you ever feel like you need an attitude adjustment? Are you wishing there was a magic pill or a new app for your mobile device? Why don't you try live local music? Music can make you dance, bring back fond memories, inspire you to be more creative, whether you attend a child's school concert or recital, go to a local symphony concert, Visit local bars and restaurants that feature dance music, sing-along piano, or jazz and blues. Music could be just what you're looking for. Supporting live local music is more than a way to support your local artists and economy. It's a great way to improve your own quality of life. Support live local music. This message is brought to you from the Tom It's Dana. Dana? Something must be wrong. She never calls. Dana? What's wrong? Take this down. She's stranded on the side of the road. I'm not. She needs us to send her an Amazon gift card. I don't. And she'll use it to pay the tow truck driver. I won't. Mom, Dad, that's not me. It's a scam. Scam artists will call, text, or email people trying to get them to buy a gift card from Amazon or some other company. And then ask for the gift card number over the phone. 
Remember, gift cards are for gifting, not for paying people. If someone asks for payment using a gift card from Amazon, Target, or some other store, it's a scam. Hang up or delete the message. These scammers are awful. Wish they'd pretend to be her brother sometimes. It'd be nice to hear from him. For more tips on avoiding scams, visit michigan.gov slash AG for your connection to consumer protection. I get the uneasy feeling Rod Serling is behind one of those doors. Rod Serling. Rod Serling. What's this, the Twilight Zone? Where is everybody? I would have been headed for the Twilight Zone. Twilight Zone. If I go any lower, I'll be in the Twilight Zone. All right. All the Jethro's right at home in the Twilight Zone. I'm in the Twilight Zone. Now, having made this little jaunt into the Twilight Zone, I got a feeling something strange is about to happen in the Twilight Zone. Hi, this is Ann Serling, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. I said no, I didn't no, want to take it. No, sometimes you're not supposed you, to say no. Well, sometimes a fellow doesn't feel like taking it. He just stands right up and says no. I didn't want to... I didn't Tommy. know it upset you this much. I just don't well, want to take it. Look what did to the song. No. Too bad you caught me on an off night like that. I just don't want to take it Tommy, when a fellow stands up and says... Tommy, take it. I just... I, you know that? You haven't even read the Folk Singers Guidebook. You, oh, you haven't even read the Folk Singers Credo. You, you don't know what it is to be a folk singer. Oh. You're a big phony. You? Oh, yeah? Yeah. Tell me, have you read the folk singer's credo? Yeah. Well, are you a folk singer? Yes, I are. Okay. Then you've read the guidebook, right? And you've read the credo. Remember when you got your guitar, it came with a book? Came with a book and an Arthur Godfrey chord changer. Yeah, I read Mom read it to me. Yeah, okay. What does the folk credo say? It says, all folk singers are obligated to do what? Dickie, I didn't know. Obligated to do what? I, I, I don't remember what it, what it said there. Say the whole credo. Come on. All folk singers are, are obligated, obligated to, to take it. That's right. He said to take it. If you feel like it. If you no, don't feel like it. it doesn't say if you feel like it. It says all folk singers are obligated to take it without hesitation, without thinking. They're to take it like a reflex. You take it, Tom. Boom, boom, boom. Yeah, well, so when I say take it, I want to see you hop to it all the time, every time. Dickie the Dictator. Boil that cabbage down. Take it, Tom. Boom, 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 all the time. <laughs> 
Hundreds of years ago, the railroad started in America. Rugged men of yesteryear went on the vast wilderness of early America with a great dream in their minds, and vision in their eyes, and big nine-pound hammers clasped in their hands. These were men of yesteryear building a vast railroad, a vast spiderweb of steel rails spanning across the width and breadth of the country, toiling and inching their way under the, under the lucky old sun. <laughs> they inched and toiled their way across the vast bosom of America. <laughs> That's throw a little sex in the show. All right, all right. But this wasn't just a fun job. You're a real garbage mouth, you know that? You're talking about history, remember? Well, there was, there, these railroad men, it wasn't fun. They faced dangers. These men of yesterday, where they went, there lurked dangers. Some of the railroad men, they'd be working in the mountains, and in the mountains, there's a lot of... A lot of dangers lurking in the mountains. These railroad men sometimes would stop at like at night when they were resting. Sometimes there's more, the nervous, some of the nervous railroad men, they'd jump out of bed in the middle of the night. They'd say, hey, I saw a danger lurk. And what kind of dangers? There was dangers lurking in the mountains and they had to build the railroads across raging deserts and blazing rivers and across the plains of America and there lurked dangers. Tommy, raging Deserts and blazing rivers. They were tough, man, to get across those. Yeah, I think so. And these real men, to make it even worse, they, they were fearless men. They had to build railroads. Wait till you hear this. They had to build railroads across crevices. Deep crevices in the ground. And these real men had to span these crevices with big railroad pretzels. And in the bottom of these crevices, Oftentimes in the bottom of these crevices, there lurked pumas. Vicious pu That's right, pumas with claws and that's foam wrong. coming out of these there pumas' mouths. Tommy, that's wrong. And they have bad breath, too. There weren't any pumas down there. There was the pumas, and oh, these rare men, they'd say, Wow, look at those pumas down Stop there in the it. crevice. There weren't any hey, pumas. Hey, I don't want to build a rail across this crevice. I don't care what you say, there's pumas in them. Tommy. For crying out loud, there were no pumas in the there, crevices. There, there wasn't was, even one puma in one crevice. There, there was, there there was, was not. <laughs> there was three pumas in the crevice. Three. Mama puma and papa puma and baby. baby puma. <laughs> Who's been sleeping in my crevice? Tommy, <laughs> right, uh... do you want me to tell you why there were no pumas in the crevices? There was pumas. You want me to tell you why? There, the reason there weren't any, we don't have any pumas in this country. The, you see, there are no pumas in America. We, we accept everybody in America, Dickie. That's right, we do. But do you want to keep your story truthful, yes, historically I, correct? Yes, I do. And get rid of the pumas right now. I'm not going down that crevice. Well, there was these vicious beasts in these crevices, and these railroad men were sore afraid. And these women come up to these crevices, they say, Wow, look at those vicious beasts in the crevices! <laughs> sure smell like pumas. Hey, spit that out. <laughs> but they weren't. But they weren't. <laughs> and these railroad men were sore afraid. Yet the railroads were completed. Yes, Americans. We can look back with pride on the historical archises of American history where these men of yesteryear completed this giant task, the transcontinental railroads. The 
took a Herculean effort on the part of these men, but the task was completed. And, and you're probably saying, you probably wonder, when sense this song coming? Maybe. Well, a big feast transpired, and a sole substance for this feast for these ravenous railroad men of yesteryear. In this big feast, the sole substance was hotcakes boiled in cabbage juice, big giant uh, pancakes um, boiled in a pot of uh, cabbage juice for several hours. <laughs> then they'd eat it. <laughs> hotcakes and cabbage juice, those guys all think it's swell. But every time I eat the stuff, I always feel like bleh. Oh, boil that cabbage down, boys, turn that old cake round. The only song I ever did sing is boil that cabbage down. Working on the railroad, working all day long. Take it. When someone says, take it, you're supposed to take it. I suppose you've read the folk singer Credo, you shot your mouth off about it enough, and then when I say take it, you didn't take it. When someone says take it, you're supposed I'm, to take I'm it. Are you a sorry. folk singer? I'm very sorry. Don't get belligerent. I, why didn't you take it? When someone says, trying to get belligerent because you were absolutely right. You stood Boy, up. that really makes me angry when a guy doesn't take it. That's right, and it makes me angry too. And I think anybody who doesn't take it should be severely chastised, Tommy. Because you were right. The way you said take it was in the true folk tradition. You stood up there on your own two feet and you said take it with authority. You knew what you were doing. You're a, a man who, who knows where he's going. That's the way you were. You said take it. And I didn't take it. I know that I didn't take it. I, I don't know what happened. I, I assumed, see, I assumed you were going to take it. Well, but you're supposed to... I know to... it. I'm supposed to take it. A folk singer should never assume anybody else is going to take it. And I should have, I should have known. I should have been alert. And I, and I wasn't. I... I guess my mind was just wandering, that's all, and I, I apologize for not taking it. Now, I assure you, I'll do my best to see that it, it never, ever happens again. Honestly. I'll let it go this time. Working on the railroad, working all day long, take it. Working, 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 working. Boil the cabbage down, boys, turn, turn, no kick round. The only song I ever did sing, boil the cabbage, boil the cabbage down. This was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program. That wraps it up for today's edition of the Tom Sumner Program. Be sure and join me tomorrow when we'll uh, have armchair politics, as we do each and every Wednesday, and we'll have commentary and analysis about today's election. Don't forget to get out and vote. I know it's a primary election, but they matter too. So get out and exercise your franchise uh, and, and vote for the candidates of your choice. And then here about the outcome tomorrow with uh, Armchair Politics. In the meantime, good night, everybody. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show. We want to acknowledge all of our guests who play such an important role in the show and our cavalcade of cohorts from coast to coast for their regular contributions. Most of the musical accompaniment was provided by people in or from the Flint area. 
Many of the pre-recorded portions of the Tom Sumner program are made possible by Flint's own Steve McComb and Pencil Sketch Recording in Nashville, Tennessee. If you have comments, questions or suggestions about the show, find us on Facebook. This is Prue Clearwater. Join us next time for another edition of the Tom Sumner Program. And thanks for listening.